You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. In today's episode, we talk with Julie Claussen about her latest release, The Sisters of Sea View. Our pinch of the past features overlooked historical figure Sarah J. Hale, and our bookworm review features Falling for the Cowgirl by Jody Hedlund. Today's guest loves all things Jane, Jane Eyre, and Jane Austen. Her books have sold over a million copies, and she is a three-time recipient of the Christie Award for Historical Fiction. The Secret of Pembroke Park was honored with a Minnesota Book Award for Genre Fiction. She's also won the Midwest Book Award and Christian Retailers Best Award and has a finalist in the Rita and Carol Awards. A graduate of the University of Illinois, she worked in publishing for 16 years and now writes full-time. She and her husband have two sons and live in the suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota. Julie Clausen, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Now, to start off with something fun, writers are known for their vast consumption of coffee as they write, but you write books set in England, so I'm wondering if you've developed a preference for tea or if the American affinity for coffee still holds on. Well, I do drink tea whenever I visit England, which of course isn't often enough. But I I hope readers aren't too disappointed to learn that when I'm at home, I still prefer coffee, French roast, the darker the better, with lots of cream. I love a dark roast coffee. Yes, we've all got to have our thing. I personally think it's fun that that coffee's still your thing. Although I'm trying to switch to tea a little bit more because I got into where I was drinking probably a little bit more caffeine than is good for me. So I, I hear you on that for sure. <laughs> Exactly. One of the things I love about your books is the little Easter eggs when you quote direct lines from Austen's novels, although, of course, you're changing the context in which they're used. But do you specifically plan which books or characters you're going to quote when you're writing? Or how do you work in these little nods to Austen? First of all, thank you for noticing that. I am glad you enjoy them. The first time I did that, adding a nod to Austen was several books ago. And I received positive comments from readers. So I thought, oh, I guess I'll continue doing that because that was sort of fun. I don't plan them in advance, but when I reach a point in my manuscript where a moment or a scene reminds me of something in one of Jane Austen's novels, I will often look and see if there is a line I can incorporate for that. I call it kind of a nod of honor. And in my upcoming novel, I even have a visit from one of Austin's characters, Mrs. Elton, which I've never done that before. Mrs. Elton? Mrs. Elton. And she proves to be just as annoying as she was in Emma. Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, that that is too good. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I've always loved like reading reading a line because Austin is so quotable. Mm -hmm. Sure. And very funny. And her wit is sharp. Yes. So many of the lines she gave Mrs. Elton are just funny. And it was a pleasure to just borrow a few of those. Yes. (laughs) And to imagine what Mrs. Elton would be like as a guest. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 
Oh, this this is going to be great. Yeah, the, I can't wait to see that in the book. You mentioned in your bio that you love Jane Eyre and novels by Jane Austen, which are all fairly well-known classics. What is your favorite underappreciated novel? Well, a few spring to mind, but if I have to pick one, I think I'll go with North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. I know many period drama fans have enjoyed the miniseries starring Richard Armitage, but the novel itself is excellent and deserves to be read as well. I love that miniseries, and I have read parts of the book, but I have not read it all the way through. It follows it quite closely. I feel like the character development may be maybe slightly deeper for Margaret in the novel, for the heroine. Yeah, but I think it's hard to capture video and books. They're just very different formats. So it is hard to capture that personal point of view that you can have in a book. You just can't have that in a recording and a video you don't always because you don't know you know exactly what they're thinking books are very personal like that so now julie is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us or perhaps there's something that god's laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers well i don't know how interesting it is but i would love to say how grateful i am for all the people who read my books because sincerely, being an author is my long dream come true. So I'm very thankful to God for allowing me to do this and for each and every reader who makes that possible. Uh, that's, I think it's cool when God makes our dreams come true. Like you worked in publishing for 16 years and now you get to write books. I know when I look back and see how God was so kind to let me get that job in publishing, which was obviously at a, a wonderful training ground for someone who wanted to be an author someday. So yeah, I'm very thankful. Yes, he's good about that sometimes, give, giving us the training, sometimes when we don't want it, but he doesn't waste anything. Let's take a moment to talk about your latest release, The Sisters of Seaview. Some guests have come for a holiday, others for hidden reasons of their own. When their father's death leaves them impoverished, Sarah Summers and her genteel sisters fear they will be forced to sell the house and separate to earn livelihoods as governesses or companions. Determined to stay together, Sarah convinces them to open their seaside home to guests to make ends meet and provide for their ailing mother. Instead of the elderly invalids they expected to receive, however, they find themselves hosting eligible gentlemen. Sarah is soon torn between a growing attraction to a mysterious Scottish widower and duty to her family. Viola Summers wears a veil to cover her scar. When forced to choose between helping at her family's new guest house and earning money to hire a maid to do her share, she chooses the latter. She reluctantly agrees to read to some of Sidmouth's many invalids, preferring the company of a few elders with failing eyesight to the fashionable guests staying in their home. But when her first client turns out to be a wounded officer in his 30s, Viola soon wishes she had chosen differently. Her new situation exposes her scars, both visible and those hidden deep within, and her cloistered heart will never be the same. Join the Summers sisters on the Devonshire coast, where they discover the power of friendship, loyalty, love, and new beginnings. Now, the setting of a vacation spot in Jane Austen's day is captivating. And with the sisters reluctantly turning to the tourist industry to provide for themselves as well on the Devonshire coast, I'm picking up some delightful hints at Sense and Sensibility. Good catch. Yes, both novels have the sisters, of course, 
and are set in Devonshire. Mm-hmm. And Gentile women didn't usually have many options to provide for themselves in the early 1800s. What gave you the idea for your heroines to open a bed and breakfast of sorts? Great question. Well, one of my favorite research books is a survey of women managing various businesses in the 19th century. And as you said, gentlewomen were far more limited in what they could do. And from this book, I learned that women with a spare room or two, especially on the seafront, saw an opportunity to make money. And offering accommodation was considered an ideal business for women because it was socially acceptable and made use of their domestic knowledge. So that's where the idea originally came from. I also thought it would be interesting to put these genteel sisters who have never known a day's work in their lives into a situation where they have to clean rooms and make beds and help serve meals. And of course, it was fun to have the sisters host eligible gentlemen under their own roof. Yes. Now, that actually makes a lot of sense that kind of taking in borders was acceptable because, like you say, the women were expected to be experts in hospitality. So it's just they're being paid for that service rather than hosting friends. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Good insight, because that is some of the argument that the mom and the sisters actually have. They're like, we're used to being hostesses. This shouldn't be this hard for us. But still, the thought of it being strangers and accepting money is very difficult for them. Yes, yes. And like you say, the work that they had to do would be a bit of a change. I'm sure they rise to the occasion, but yeah. Especially Sarah, who's my kind of my eldest practical sister. She kind of whips them all into shape, (laughs) whether they want to or not. She's going to make this work. Right. Now, you have written so many books in this time period that you're probably almost as much at home there as in the 21st century. But as you were researching this story, did you run across any interesting history that surprised you? Yeah, I'm just glad you asked that question because sometimes when I meet people and they find out I write research or just romance, that kind of a thing, I like I want to say, but even though I write fiction, I really do to find interesting historical facts and weave them into the novel. So in this book, for example, I was intrigued by some of the medical practices of the day, like they believe that bathing Uh, in the ocean year-round was good for their health, and they even drank seawater. Doctors prescribed for them to do that, which, of course, we would (laughs) find (laughs) very strange and even a little dangerous. So I like to weave in that sort of thing when I can. Oh, wow. And I feel like historical medical practices are probably the one of the best places to find some weirder teas, but drinking seawater. I'd never heard of that one. I could see the bathing year round at full would be good for you. Get your heart pumping, but drinking seawater. I don't really get that one. Well, I agree. I don't either. But I, when I find strange things like that, especially when I have historical quotes that I could use at the beginning of the chapter <laughs> to show that I'm not making this up, folks. I like to use those and kind of a little shocking and a little, wow, we've come a long way. Yes. In the book it goes. I love it. Provide some comedic relief as well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I agree. I hope so. Yeah. So your blurb doesn't tell us a whole lot about the gentlemen in the story. Could you give us a peek at their personalities? Sure. Well, the ladies end up hosting a few different gentlemen. One is a 
lonely, quirky man who talks to a stuffed parrot. Another one is a single gentleman who quickly becomes smitten with Emily, one of the sisters. But he is not all he seems to be. And finally, the handsome Scottish widower you mentioned with a secret. At his heart, he is a kind, responsible man who falls in love with a different sister. That's interesting bringing in a Scotsman. What were kind of the attitudes between England and Scotland at the time? I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on that, but there were certainly some people who thought if you're a Scot, you're a little bit more of a, or a little less civilized, a little less couth, a little more rough and tumble. But then again, there were all those royal connections that we saw if you watch Queen Elizabeth's funeral and all that, those connections go back for a long time. So we know the Prince Regent in this time period visited Scotland with his royal visits. He did not go, oh, his visit did not go over as well as the Queen's. But there is that long history there. But there were certainly prejudices as well, which in this case, Mrs. Elton is not too sure about having a Scot at the same dinner table. But she's a piece of work, as we all know. So She would be exactly the lady to have an issue with that, I'm afraid. Poor <laughs> Mrs. Elton. Yes. I agree. Well, what kind of writerly things are you doing in the future? Well, for the foreseeable future, I will be sitting in this chair (laughs) writing away on book two, which is due to my first readers here next month. Okay, so the Sisters of Seaview, they do have a sequel, so there's more to their story. Correct. So my thought is that, so it's going to be a three book series, and my plan is that each book will have its own plot and its own romance that will wrap up. But yes, the sisters' lives will continue to weave together throughout the series. Okay, so can be read as standalones, but we get to see how these characters' lives continue, which is my favorite way to have a series. That's what I'm trying to do, because I I know not everybody likes a series. And so yes, if I do my job well, we'll see. You can read them on their own. But yes, hopefully enjoy them more if you read them in order. Absolutely. I like series, but when each installment in the series ends on a sort of cliffhanger and then I have to wait like a year to get the next book, I find that frustrating. It's really nice when they can be read as standalones, but it's nice as well because you still get to venture back into that story world and see the characters that you fell in love with in the last book. And I'm going to just confess right now that I did not plan for this to be a series originally when I started writing it. And I fell so much in love with the setting, with the family. It seemed natural with all those sisters. I went to my editor and said, I think this needs to be a series. And she completely agreed. So hopefully it can be the best of both worlds. Oh, I love it when characters like capture you and they're like, our story's not done. You have to keep going. Exactly. Got many more ideas to come. Perfect. And maybe a few more cameos by Jane Austen characters. Oh, (laughs) I'll have to think about that, Darcy. (laughs) So for our listeners, Julie has been so gracious to offer a copy of the Sisters of Seaview. And to enter to win, just check out our website, historicalbookworm.com. And we have a giveaways page there. You can also find the link for this giveaway in the show notes of this episode. And Julie, thank you so much for coming on the Historical Bookworm Show. Where can our listeners connect with you? Well, a couple places. Certainly my website has all my books listed. That's julieclausen.com. 
Or you can find me on Facebook where I spend way too much time. I, will, I love interacting with readers on Facebook, especially. Right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been just a little light chatting with you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Now for a pinch of the past. In today's pinch of the past, we're looking at a little known historical figure, Sarah J. Hale. She was born in 1788 and was the daughter of a Revolutionary War officer, and she was a native of Newport, New Hampshire. She was born to Captain Gordon Buell and Martha Whittlesby. Both of these parents really believed in educating their daughters, and so even though Sarah's brothers were sent off to school, she was educated at home, which really paid off as an adult because she was widowed in 1822 with five children. Oh, wow. And education would be vital to secure, you know, provision for her kids in that time period. We just did the pinch of the past talking about what some widows had to do to try to survive for their kids. So that is that is really mm-hmm. cool that um, her parents invested in her education like that. Yeah. And she opened up a milliner's shop right away, but her real passion was writing And so in the following year, she was able to publish a book of poems with the support of her husband's Freemason Lodge. Her first novel, Northwood, was an anti-slavery work, and it appeared in 1827. This work established her literary reputation. And upon seeing her work, the owner of the ladies magazine asked her to come and work as editor. Now, in 1837, this magazine was bought by a new owner and renamed the Gaudy's Ladies Book. Oh, the famous magazine, which is known mm-hmm. for fashion, but had so much more than fashion in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Sarah remained as the editor for the next 30 years. Oh, wow. And she, she also used her platform to support the abolishment of slavery and later colonization which is freeing of African-Americans and sending them to Africa. Um, She was a strong supporter of female education. She helped to establish the Vassar College, which was a college for women. She also published Emerging American Writers, giving them an audience of up to 150,000 readers. These readers included Harriet Beecher Stowe, Lydia Marie Child, and Catherine Sedwick. Let's see, also Emma Willard, Susan B. Anthony, Edgar Allan Poe, Henry David Longfellow, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Wow, those are some names that we really remember and respect today. It's interesting to think that, you know, when they were just starting out, someone, you know, gave them one of their first opportunities. That's really neat. Yeah. And Sarah, she also helped to establish the Siemens Aid Society. She did this in 1833. They provided jobs for families of deceased Siemens in Boston's North End. They also had the Mariner's House, which was an industrial school for Siemens daughters and a day nursery just to help with help families when, you know, the breadwinner passed away at sea. Wow. that's a very cool organization, actually, because it's such a such a niche, you know, the families of seamen. Yes, yes. 
She was active in preserving national places like Mount Vernon, George Washington's home in Virginia, and she funded a Bunker Hill Monument Project. Oh, that's neat. It's causes that we feel like are very modern, and yet here she was Mm -hmm. working for them in the 1800s. Yeah, they had to start somewhere, so... Uh, Sarah wrote, Mary had a little lamb, and she's also cited as the grandmother of Thanksgiving. Now, at the time, the Native Americans in North America had harvest festivals, and colonists had services of Thanksgiving. But the tradition was only rooted in what is now the northern part, northeastern part of the country. So seeing that Thanksgiving was still celebrated in the north, but not moving into the south and not so much in the territories to the west, Sarah was concerned that the tradition would eventually cease to exist. And so she began writing presidents in 1844. She wrote to Presidents Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, Buchanan, and finally Abraham Lincoln in 1863. She urged him in an editorial to make the third Thursday of November a national holiday of Thanksgiving to, as she said, offer to God our tribute of joy and gratitude for the blessings of the year. Lincoln supported legislation to make a national day of Thanksgiving and praise. Wow, that is neat that she persisted. This was something she saw as a benefit for the whole country. And she persisted in writing to five presidents total before it was finally successful. That's, she's such a cool lady. Everything you keep saying is like, wow, this woman was really cool. (laughs) Sarah Hale retired as editor in 1877 and she died two years later at the age of 92. Now, I love teaching my children and my students about Sarah J. Hale, because although she was a modest woman who is often overlooked in history, the small differences that she made in our country are precious. We could all learn from Sarah's example of affecting a positive change with the skills we have in the world where we live today. Time for our bookworm review. Rolling for the Cowgirl by Jody Hudland. Years ago, he shattered her heart. Now she must trust him with her life. As the only girl in her family and with four older brothers, Ivy McQuaid can rope and ride with the toughest of ranchers. She's ready to have what she's always longed for, a home of her own. She set her heart on a parcel of land south of Fair Play and is saving for it with her winnings from the cowhand competitions she sneaks into. But her dreams, but her dream is put in jeopardy when the man she once loved reappears in her life. After two years away, Jericho Bliss is back in South Park as an undercover Pinkerton agent searching for a war criminal. He has no intention of involving a woman in the dangerous life he leads, but one look at Ivy is all it takes for him to question the path he set out for himself. Even though Jericho tries to resist his longtime attraction to the beautiful and vivacious Ivy, he finds himself falling hard and fast for her. In the process, his worst fear comes true. He puts her smack dab in the middle of danger. With Ivy's life in the balance, will Jericho give her up once again, or will he find a way back to her, this time forever? Today's Bookworm Review is brought to you by Megan Adams from the Bookstagram account Messy Bun Bookish Fun. 
Oh my holy St. Peter, Jody has done it again. She's roped me in and hog steer ties me with another McQuaid book. I wasn't so sure about this one. Ivy has been that annoying little sister with a really big mouth and larger personality since book two, and I wasn't sure I was going to like her. And while it's not my favorite of the Colorado Cowboys, that's still a toss-up between Flynn and Brody, I really appreciate how Jody grew her up, but also kept the same elements that were Ivy. It made her and this story feel more real. Sometimes authors grow up the characters too much, and they change, and it feels less like real humans. This didn't. And the slow burn and tension between her and Jericho come on. I was just like, get on with it. But then when those kisses, yes, plural, came, it was fantastic. But again, like real life, the tension didn't stop there. But among all the kisses, tension, bickering, and banter, I deeply appreciated how Jody intertwined scripture and biblical truths into the story. Darcy, how are you doing today? I am doing well. I'm excited because I get to put our Christmas tree up earlier than my sisters have ever let me get away with it before. Which is due to the fact that my sister who's in the Air Force is visiting us the weekend before Thanksgiving rather than after. And we wanted to decorate the tree together. So I am going to have my tree up like a whole week earlier than I could ever get away with it. Unfortunately, doing it early means that the stores don't necessarily have their fresh trees in stock because we have been trying to get a tree since the middle of the week. Just get it done, get it out of the way. We'll water it. It'll be fine. But we finally got it this morning. So I'm excited. It smells so good. I love having a fresh tree. Yeah, me too. I'm waiting until after Thanksgiving. I Part of me was like, I have the whole week off. And if I don't do it now, when will I do it and whatnot? But yeah, I'm going to wait and just, yeah. Be a sensible person. Let Thanksgiving have its day and then put the tree up. Yes, yes. So what's up with you lately? Well, today is my son's birthday. Oh, happy birthday to little Monty. No, I know. And he is turning 14 and... Not so little anymore. Oh my goodness, he's taller than me now. I don't know when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> he's just such a genuine, good-hearted young man. But we, my husband and I are getting him a puppy. He's never had his own pet other than a fish, and we're getting him a puppy. We're going to go pick out the puppy, a little girl puppy, this evening. She won't be able to leave her mama until December 2nd, but I'm so excited. That's so sweet, and he can go ahead and meet her, and oh, that's that's perfect. That is perfect. A boy needs his dog. It's a pug and Boston Terrier mix. <laughs> oh, so she's going to have that little smush face. It's going to be so cute. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's a little piece of my life. <laughs> You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.